All right, we are jumping into Acts chapter 12. We're going to go through the entire chapter here this morning. Before we do, let's pray. And just by way of outline, we're going to read through the whole chapter just to get the context under our belts this morning, and then we'll back up and discuss. I need to organize my notes here. I've got some some quotes this morning. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, Lord, and again. We are here to worship you because you are worthy to be worshiped. You are worthy as our creator. You are worthy as our savior. You are worthy as our provider, as our protector, as our father, as our very life. You and you alone, Lord, are worthy. We love you, and we're asking that you'd help us to hear your voice right now. You've caused these words to be written and preserved, so we desire to hear your voice and know what they mean, Lord, and how um, they will help us in our relationship with you and following you and testifying to the world about your beauty and your holiness and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says, now about, that, now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, uh, now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold... An angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So we went out and followed him and did not know that what what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from them. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel. And he delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, so they said, it is his angel." 
Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend. They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Yuck. But the word of God grew and multiplied. So remember where we are in the book of Acts. You have this man, Luke who has given us the testimony that he has a a perfect understanding of the order of events in regards to Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection. As we step into the book of Acts, this, this part two, so to say, he is still writing to Theophilus in regards to Jesus's ascension. The promise uh, from the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit coming, this birth of what is known as the church that we as called out ones from the culture are now filled with, that the God who created the heavens, the earth, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in the lives, in the bodies of men and women that he created in his image. As we are traveling with Luke in this letter to Theophilus, the Holy Spirit is leading Luke in regards to what to pin down and what to write. We have, again, that day of Pentecost, and we have the gospel being shared there in the community in Jerusalem, and you have people responding to the gospel, responding to who Jesus is. Remember, dominantly, like up until... um, it go, the gospel goes into Samaria and then to the Gentiles there in chapter 10. The gospel is only being preached to Jews. So here are individuals who believe in the true God, who are, uh, you know, they believe in the, that, the, that the Old Testament is the word of God, but they're responding to Jesus being defined as their Messiah. Again, this has a specific context in this culture as they're responding to who Jesus is. And as they turn to Jesus, it's having consequences in their relationships with family members, with community members, and with government. In the earlier persecutions we we see in the book of Acts, it is all sourced from religious persecution. There's jealousy from the religious leaders. Uh, They're trying to maintain power. They're trying to crush what they see as a rebellious movement rather than the truth. Now as we step into chapter 12 here and we have Herod rising up to harass the church, to do harm and to do injury to the church, we're looking at now, this is, this is politically motivated. We don't know the exact reason why. 
that Herod is looking at believers in Jesus Christ as some kind of political threat. So they are either threatening his power, his control, the stability or lack of stability in the government that he is responsible to oversee, or, and what seems to, to draw out from this fla- the flavor of this passage, it seems like that this is a popular thing for him to do. So he is motivated to lift himself up and exalt himself as a leader in the community by doing something that is popular for those that he is ruling over. And we see this in our context today. The church is used as a pawn in our political spectrums. So regardless of what political bents are, um, and we can see this not just in America, but throughout every government in the world, throughout all of history, that the church, the body of Christ is looked at as a segment that is being ruled over. And that segment is going to be sometimes used, sometimes abused. And other times there's going to be alignment in regards to vision and mission. In our country that we live in, we live in a history where um, it was unpopular to rail against God, to rail against Jesus, to rail against the body of Christ in any fashion. As we traveled through history in our country, we live in a time right now where it's popular to bash Jesus, it's popular to bash Christians, it's popular to bash the word in favor of more humanistic and cultural philosophies rather than the truth of the word of God. And this is something that we sit in daily. This Herod here, as we sit in just the history of the Bible, if you have a study Bible, it's helpful for um, these kinds of things to pull out, but otherwise we wouldn't know what Herod is being talked about because we wouldn't have a historical perspective. So Herod the Great died in 4 BC. So Herod the Great is the Herod that was alive at the time that Jesus was born. He's called the Great because of all of his building accomplishments. Um, But again, he died in 4 BC. His authority that he had as king of the Jews was a title granted by Rome to him. And the, the authority that the Herods had over the nation of Israel was always subject to and underneath the the ultimate authority of the Romans. So when Herod dies, his authority is split out between his multiple sons. So if you sit in the family tree of the Herods at all, it is a gross soap opera of humanity. Um, Herod had multiple wives, so when you deal with his sons that step into authority after his death, every single one of them is from a different wife. So there's lots of, um, there's infighting amongst them. There's power trips amongst them. Sometimes they're friendly, sometimes they're not. The Herod, after Herod dies, so remember the, the nativity story, um, Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt. After Herod dies, they come back. They go into Nazareth. The Herod that's in control at that time is Herod Antipas. So Herod Antipas and this Herod here, this is Herod Agrippa. Um, Herod Antipas is the uncle of Herod Agrippa. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa here in chapter 12 is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa is the one, or, or sorry, Herod Antipas 
It's hard to keep all this straight. He is the one, he is the Herod that we see in the Gospels at, uh, in regards to the beheading of John the Baptist, that is Herod Antipas. When Jesus is arrested and Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, um, that Herod is Herod Antipas. So he was the one that was um, there as, as Jesus was crucified. Herod Antipas, he is the one who marries his brother-in-law's ex-wife. So Herodias, and this is that whole event led to John the Baptist's beheading that we see in the Gospels. Herod Antipas, because of his issues that he had and because of the issues mainly that he had and his obedience to the Roman government, they cast him out pretty much and they give control of his territory to Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa comes to his initial power in the year 37. And the year that we're dealing with here in chapter 12 the year that he died was in AD 44. This is all important to understand just in timing. So best guesstimates is either that Jesus resurrected in the year 30 AD or in the year 33. So we're talking roughly 14 years to 11 years in that time range. After Jesus has ascended into heaven, that's how long it's been that these events are now transpiring. If you remember from the end of chapter 11, what is going on in the community and the culture is that there is a famine. So those, remember, in Antioch, the believers in Antioch, they've sent relief to minister to the church that's there in Jerusalem. They send this relief by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So as we sit in 44 AD, what is going on politically, Herod is dealing with a famine. So Herod Agrippa, he is popular with the Jews. He is uh, a kosher Jew. He is a religious observant Jew. He is, given, he is known to have given substantial funds in support of the Jewish religion, in supporting local synagogues, in supporting the Jewish culture in general. So he's popular with the people. When famine comes around... Who are people going to look to to provide food? We're going to look to our government. So as the famine is sitting in this culture and it's going on in time, more than likely he is looking for a way to remain popular in the eyes of those that he is reigning over. And in this popularity, it's seen that this movement that... um, persecuting the church is going to have political dividends to him in regards to those that he is ruling over. So we see him stretch out his hand to do harm and to harass the church. So we're given this this one sentence that he kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. I was talking in, in prayer this morning, and I didn't have the chance to go and look at this. But in my mind's eye, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that we have any of the words of James recorded for us in the Gospels. We have, we have James and John who 
who uh, when Jesus is passing through Samaria, they ask together corporately to call down fire from heaven. We have James and John come to Jesus together and ask Jesus, let one of us be on your right hand, another on, your, on the left hand. So we have these snapshots of a, of a corporate experience. But when we sit in the testimony of Peter, we have a lot of Peter's words so out of Peter's words, we get a lot of his character. We see how his relationship with Jesus. We see him transform over time. We have a couple of Peter's letters. So we have a lot more words of Peter. In regards to James, it's, we have almost zero in regards to the testimony of this man's life. Now, why, why, why I brought up the, the time frame from Jesus' ascension to um, the time of this event here is James, so Peter, James, and John have a specific intimacy and a specific relationship with Jesus that was different from the rest of the disciples. We see them pulled, those three men pulled in separately to um, when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. We see these three pulled separately and that they witness Jesus transfigured on the mount. And again, we're going to, the next couple of weeks, we'll get into this a little bit later, but we're going to go and read First and Second Peter and study those two together. That event in Peter's life was huge. So we know that that event, seeing Jesus transfigured on the mount, that that was a substantial event in Peter's life, in James's life, and in John's life. We also see these three men pulled separately aside as Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane praying in his sorrow, in his earnest prayer that he's praying, he pulls these three men to go and pray with him. So there's, there's those three guys, there's, there's an elevation of them in contrast to the remainder of the disciples. Yet James, again, this is a guy that we almost know nothing about. We are told in the book of Revelation that this man's name is one of the 12 names written on the 12 foundation stones of heaven. This man had an intimate relationship with Jesus in his flesh. This man witnessed his resurrection. This man witnessed his ascension. This man was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This man has remained in this community of Jerusalem being what? Being a witness to Jesus because of his relationship with the Lord and the power given him to be a witness. But us down these years of history, we have very little testimony in regards to him. And that's why I'm going to read this quote. This is from Eusebius. Eusebius is writing around the time, 300 AD, so the fourth century. So this is when Constantine is coming into power. This is when Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. But Eusebius is quoting Clement. Clement would have been... A, a kid at the time that James died, but this is what Clement wrote about concerning this event in James's life. So it said, Eusebius says he is telling it as he received it from those who had lived before him. He says that uh, the one who led James to the judgment seat, when he saw James bearing his testimony, that this man was moved. And he confessed that he himself was also a Christian. 
It says, uh, Clement says, they were both therefore led away together, and on the way this man begged James to forgive him. After he, after considering a little, said, peace be with thee, and he kissed him. And thus they were both beheaded at the same time. So this is one of these stories of church history that we have no way to corroborate that this is, that this is real. Again, Clement, this is a story that he received secondhand. Clement would have had a relationship with Peter. There's history that tells us that Clement had a relationship with John. He is uh, looked to as one of the, the early popes in succession uh, to Peter. When you look into church history, he died, I believe, in the year 99. So it's a very early quote. So Clement wrote about this event that he heard about, and Eusebius is now quoting Clement. So again, there's some removal from this reality. But I bring it up just because it gives us a, a perceived snapshot in regards to James's relationship with the Savior, Jesus. Remember, James and John are brothers. They're fishing with their father on the Sea of Galilee. And here Jesus walking along the shore calls to them to follow. And James and John, they leave all, they leave their fishing business with their father and they follow this man and they witness this man. They live with this man, they listen to this man. They respond to this man, they serve this man. So everything that we talk about James, his life is fully influenced and transformed and changed by who Jesus Christ is and by what he did and because of his relationship with Jesus and because of his position as a leader amongst the body of Christ in this community, when Herod wants to stretch out his hand and do harm, he selects one of the leaders, he selects one of the three that is known to be the closest to have been the closest with Jesus and he has his head cut off. I find this fascinating, um, not only the lack of information that we know about James, but also there, there would be an assumption, I want to assume, because of his relationship with Christ, that he would have prolonged this man's life, that he would have prolonged his witness, that he would have intervened into his life in some supernatural way to have saved him from this death. But God didn't. This is what I had a hard time titling this morning's sermon, and I decided to title it Exodus, because Exodus means going out. And as we travel through this passage, we watch three men go out. We watch James go out of this life with the life of Jesus. We watch Herod go out of this life without Jesus. And we watch Peter being delivered, going out from a prison cell being preserved for a specific reason according to the will of God. Ultimately, in James's life, his life, his walk with Jesus, the calling in his life, the Lord's plans and purposes in his life have been fulfilled, and he has finished his race well. Last note to note about James is here in, in the first chapter of Acts, Judas, his office, his position as an apostle, as one of the 12, is seen there is a need to replace him because he betrayed Jesus. 
he abandoned his office in his position. So we see in Acts 1 where Matthias is selected and there's, uh, you know, debate on whether Matthias was the Lord's choice or whether Paul was the Lord's choice or somebody else. Regardless, here in the early church, when this man, as an apostle, dies, the church does not seek to have somebody else stand in the shoes of his office because his office as one of the 12, as a witness of Christ, has been fulfilled. And again, there's... uh, there would be lots of historical debate in regards to the impact of that. So when James is killed, Herod sees how good of a job he has done in pleasing those that he is ruling. So he goes on further, well, if they, if they applauded me for killing James, they'll really applaud me for killing Peter. And then we're given the time frame of this, and the time frame, this is, this is important again in relationship. So this is the, for us, we're going to call it the season of Easter, but for the disciples, so as Peter is arrested, he is put into custody, We don't know any kind of abuse that he is sustaining, but he has multiple days being chained to these soldiers and being in this cell as he is staring his death in the face. Everybody knows, the church knows, the Jews know, and Peter knows the reason why he has been arrested and the reason why he is going to be taken out before the Jews is for his execution. And here we have Peter sitting in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the seven-day period of time that encompasses the Passover. And yet all of this pointing to who Jesus is, what he did, all of these events, again, sit in it in Peter's testimony in the Gospels of everything that he witnessed in Jesus' life. This week that we have so much detail of in the Gospels, In regards to what Jesus did and to what he taught and to what he said, all of these are going to be memorable events for Peter to be meditating on as he is looking his death in the face in just a few days. And as he's meditating on this, we're told that uh, he already has a reputation for a jail escape, right? So in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles were arrested, an angel lets them out. They go into the temple and they're preaching again. It causes a huge commotion. This is a known event in the community. When Herod arrests this man, he not only wants to protect him from escape from any of the disciples trying to free him from prison, but he also knows the reputation that Peter, that comes along with Peter, his reputation for healing. Again, all the miracles that have been performed through Peter in this community and other communities. This is information that is going to be popular in the community. He has the testimony of a prison break already. So when it says there's four squads of soldiers, this is four squads of four men. Peter is continually shackled between two of these men. There's two others that are standing guard outside of the room that he is being held in. And these four men are on four rotations throughout the day as they are keeping constant watch over Peter so that nothing can happen to him. And then we get this testimony of Peter that he is soundly sleeping in the midst of this circumstance. Again, to me, this this bears the testimony of, again, the sweet sleep 
that comes from a close, confident, trusting relationship with who Jesus is. If this man was not in that position, sleep would be something that would escape from him. We could make the argument that he's just thoroughly exhausted because he's been in this position for a while. But we're going to go for the argument that he is soundly sleeping and resting and trusting in his Lord. That come what may, he trusts in Jesus. But here we're given the the testimony that this is what happens, that as he is sleeping, he is chained between these two guards. And again, this is, all of this is supernatural. It's it's hard to imagine the film reel to even, even sit in this, but Peter is sleeping. Two of these guards may be asleep that are chained to him, but you gotta know that the guards that are on the outside, these guys are fully awake goes through the first set of guard gates, the second, gate, uh, second set of guard gates. There are people who are awake, they are attentive, and they would be able to witness this. So God is doing something behind the scenes, supernaturally, covering the reality of what's going on in Peter. Just like there is a supernatural world and realm in this room, we are told that there are spiritual beings in this room right now that are unclothed to us. We cannot see them. When an angel steps in and is manifested, they become clothed in this flesh so that there's an interaction going on. What's going on here is the exact opposite. Where Peter is clothed in the flesh, in this event, he is being unclothed to the rest of human eyes as this angel transports him out of this room. But listen to Peter's condition. The angel tells him to put his clothes on and to tie on his sandals. So the image that we get is Peter is probably in his loincloth. He's probably been abused. He's dirty. He's filthy. He's tired. He's still confident in his relationship with the Lord. But when the angel strikes his side, and this isn't a tender action. This is like a a, a, a nice hard strike. The same word that the angel strikes Herod at the end of this chapter is the exact same word of the angel striking Peter's side here. But he tells them, put on your, your, your clothes, put on your shoes, tie your sandals, get up. And then he tells them to put on his garment, that's his cloak, that's his outward garment. Come, follow me. And then this whole scene, Peter, in his mind, he thinks that he's seeing a vision. So similar to the the vision that we saw him see earlier of the sheet coming down from heaven. He thinks that he's seen something supernatural that in his mind he is unaware of the reality of the events that are transpiring until this angel leads him out. The iron gate's kind of like on an automatic button at the command of God. This gate opens of its own accord They turn down a corner of the street. This angel disappears and Peter is, this is real. Again, we have to imagine, you got to play the film in your mind to see the comedy here and to see the, the confusion here in Peter's mind. But he uses this word, he comes to himself. He has this realization that this is real. He has this understanding that God just granted him an exodus out of prison and not just out of prison, but out of an execution. 
And he, as his response to this is, I know, I, I now recognize, I'm aware for certain that God sent his angel to deliver me, to save me, to free me. Peter, just like you would, and I would, Peter has got to be sitting in the, this, this, why? He know he is sitting in mourning for his brother in the Lord, James, that has just died. He may be mourning for himself and for his brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that he's all right with dying because he knows where he's going. But the impact of what's going to happen to the people who were left behind. And now he's sitting in just this supernatural, incredible event. And out of his mouth is this testimony. I know for certain that God sent his angel to deliver me. To deliver me from the hand, the harsh hand and the violent hand of Herod and from the violent expectation of all the Jews. And the Jews, by context, are those that are standing in open rejection and open hostility to Jesus and anybody following Jesus. And then as Peter's thinking in this, he's having, you know, where's he gonna go? Again, in this community, we are told that at the time of the first persecution, so when Stephen is stoned and the church scatters, um, the guest at the population of the, the church in Jerusalem at this time is 25,000 people. So we're given earlier on in the chapter that as Peter is being kept in prison, that there is this constant prayer. And the word for constant, it's earnest. It's stretched out prayer. A stretched out, earnest conversation is going on between the body of Christ and God on behalf of Peter. The body of Christ in this community, again, they are living in that moment of mourning of one of their leaders being executed. They are living in the reality that another leader is going to be executed. And we're told that the church, so how many ever people are there in their community that are aware of this? And all these different households, the body of Christ is gathered together in stretched out, earnest prayer on behalf of Peter. It's the same, this word for earnest, it's the same word that is used of, of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke in regards to his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The same earnestness in which Jesus sought his Father because of the torture and the crucifixion and the death and the wrath of God that was going to be poured out upon him for the sins of all humanity. The seriousness and the depth of that prayer is the same word that's being used here in regards to the church. This is not flippant. This is not superficial. This is deep. This is, this is relationship. If your spouse, if your child, if somebody that you loved and that you cared for was in a prison and you know that their violent execution is coming, how would you pray different than how you prayed this morning? That's, that's what's going on. Now, the humor comes out in this chapter as Peter, in his, in his mind, his relationship with the Lord, he's determining to go to one house. We don't know why he picks this particular house, but it gives us an introduction to John Mark. John Mark, we're going to see at the end of this chapter, Barnabas and Saul take him back to Antioch with them, and we're going to see this relationship with John Mark. So it gives us this introduction. This is his mom's home. 
This is a wealthy home. It has an outer gate. This young girl, it's a, uh, the term is not, it's not just a young girl. She's a servant in the household. But not only is she a servant, a slave girl in this household, she's also a believer. She's excited that Peter's there knocking on the door, but Peter comes up to the outer gate and he's knocking. Now remember, this is the middle of the night. Because of the wealth of this family, you can kind of pick where this home would be located. It's not that far from where, um, where Peter would have been held in prison. It's going to be outside of other people's homes and gates in the middle of the night that are in opposition to the church. So here Peter is knocking on the door outside And Rhoda, she doesn't open the door. It says because of her joy, because of her gladness. She goes in and she's talking to everybody who is in earnest prayer for Peter. That Peter's outside. And they respond to her, Rhoda, you're insane. You, young lady, are out of your mind. And she keeps saying, no, Peter is outside. It's his angel. This is this is this is a weird section. But one of the things that's pulled out in, the, in all of the commentaries, if you have this contrast between this very passionate, earnest, stretched out, long-term conversation with God on behalf of Peter. And what are they praying for Peter? Are they praying for his deliverance from prison? Are they praying that God's gonna preserve his life? Are they praying that God would give Peter boldness and courage to witness Jesus one last time before he's executed? You know, what, what is the content of the prayer? But for everybody that's in this room, in this household, that would be praying that, he, that Peter would be freed and delivered from the prison, when Peter's standing outside knocking on the door and they're given the testimony that he is outside, their faith comes across as really small. Now this is where I sit in the confusion, you know, we, we need to be really cautious when we communicate. Our conversation with God needs to be according to the will of God. We are told that his spirit that is within us, he is the one who is leading us and guiding us in our prayers and in our conversation to God. We are told that as we abide in Christ, Christ abides in us, his word abides in us, that as we are abiding with him, that what we ask, we are promised that we will receive because it is motivated and generated from his heart and his will so we can pray with confidence and we can pray with boldness. But often in our prayers, like sometimes I feel like I'm bossing God around. Sometimes I feel like I'm asking things of God that I'm really not sure are according to his will. It's just according to my flesh. I don't know where this particular group of individuals is sitting in in regards to their prayer, but there is some comedy going on here and just the insight into all of our hearts that there's sometimes when we pray, even in earnestness, we're not really expecting God to answer our prayers. Sometimes when we're praying in earnestness, we're really just bossing God according to our own will. And then... When God does answer our prayers, are you not most often left in astonishment that he heard you and that he answered? 
Like, God, I know that you hear. God, I know that you care. I know that you provide. I know that you're sovereign. I don't feel worthy to receive any of your benefits, but I know because of your grace and your mercy and your love for me that you attend to me, you love me, you care for me, you desire to provide for me, you are leading in these prayers. But every time he answers those things, there's always a sense of astonishment in me and there's a sense of praise and thanksgiving and gratitude that the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth really does invite me into his presence, into his throne of grace through his son. He really is leading me. He really does love me. He really has saved me. He really does care about the intimate aspects of my life. And when I pray, I don't know, you know, you can't tell me that the church wasn't praying for James to be delivered. And God chose his life is done. When the Lord delivers Peter here and they invite Peter in finally and they get the testimony from Peter that this is what the Lord did. Now go and tell James, this is James, the brother of Jesus, so clearly not the James that was executed earlier on. Go tell James, go tell the brethren. So he's conveying the information that I have been delivered. God has heard your prayer. He's gonna go depart to a secret place because everybody knows what's coming in the morning. But go and give the testimony, I'm alive, I'm okay. So the church goes and communicates that information to the rest of the church as Peter goes and hides away privately. And then we get this testimony of when Herod wakes up and he calls for Peter, it says there's now no small stir going on amongst the guards because everybody knows what the, the consequence is and this commotion that's going on. The result, again, this is the Lord preserved this man Peter's life. In the preservation of Peter, at least 16 men lost their lives. Again, all of this is under the sovereign hand of God. All of this is according to his holiness. All of this is according to his just judgment. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of depth that is conveyed out of, uh, you know, the superficial readings of these things. The scene that we're given of Herod, so remember, this is in a time of famine. Herod, as ruler, has been having some trouble with the people of Tyre and Sidon for whatever reason. And the political intrigue that's going on behind the scenes, this man Blastus says it's the king's personal aid. It's literally, this man is over the king's bedchamber. So this is, this is a guy that is, that is involved in all the personal aspect of Herod's life. This is a close confidant. This is somebody that you allow into your personal life. This is somebody that you allow into your wife's, and for this guy's case, probably multiple wives' lives, his children's lives. So these people of Tyre and Sidon, they're able to be, become friends with this man, and they use this man to speak to Herod. Now remember, Herod is in Caesarea at this point. So the commotion with Peter disappearing, probably be a really good time to distance yourself from whatever occurred there. So he's in Caesarea. And this we get out of Josephus that gives us some, some more insight to what's going on in this event. So this is a little bit longer quote, but again, get a lot more flavor of the details. So Josephus, a Jewish Roman historian, 
wrote this. He says, now, when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Stratos Tower. And there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar. So in the Bible, it says on this set day that Herod, he's he's arrayed in all this royal apparel. Um, Here's this set day, these shows that are going on in the honor of Caesar. Upon being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety. So Tyre and Sidon, they're making vows for, uh, for Herod's safety. Remember, the, uh, the famine is going on. Herod is the one who is supplying Tyre and Sidon with food. So it's in their best interest to be in his good graces. So at which, at this festival, a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and such as were of dignity through his province. So on the second day, of which shows he put on a garment made holy of silver. So in the Bible, we're told he's arrayed in this royal apparel. This is what Josephus says in regards to the garment. Made holy of silver and of a contexture, this is definitely old English, sorry, and of a contexture truly wonderful. And he came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment was being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. So again, this is the imagery that we're given. He's not just in some nice robes. This man is in an outfit of polished silver. This silver is reflecting the light of the sun. And as the people that are in the audience that are witnessing this, and this is a bunch of pagans, so this is where their hearts are going, says, and presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced, reverenced thee only as a man, Yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. In other words, you are not a man, you are a God. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he presently afterwards looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that the bird was the messenger of ill tidings. As it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him and fell into the deepest sorrow. Here's the worms. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a God, and commanded presently to to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who was called by you, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. But I am bound to accept of what providence allots as it pleases God, for we have by no means lived ill, but in splendid and happy manner. When he said this, his pain was become violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, 
and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in a little time. And this is, this is one of the reasons why I'm reading this uh, long quote. Um, remember, the church gathered in earnest prayer to God on behalf of Peter. Here, these people are now gathered in earnest prayer to God on behalf of Herod. It says that the multitude presently sat. They sat in sackcloth with their wives and children after the law of their country, and they besought God for the king's recovery. All places also uh, were also full of mourning and lamentation. Now the king rested in a high chamber, and as he saw them below lying prostrate on the ground, he could not himself forbear weeping. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. So Josephus gives us a snapshot just further behind what is going on here. Herod arrayed in all of his glory, using the sun to to image, to reflect himself, uh, to reflect its light, to have impact upon the people that he is standing before, them responding to him in, in a pagan manner. That is not the voice of God. That is the voice, or that is the voice of God and not of a man. He doesn't rebuke them. Angel of the Lord strikes him because he doesn't give God glory. We sit in the wise of this. There are so many other men and women in these positions of authority, national authority, that receive godly attributes, godly adoration where God does not judge. Again, all of this according to the will of God. The last ending testimony that we're going to look at here is that the word of God grew and multiplied. So in this entire snapshot, you have to add, like, Lord, why did you preserve this? Here we have a political threat against the church. We are given the testimony of one of the central leaders of the early church being executed because it was politically expedient. We have the Lord delivering another central leader of the church in a miraculous way, a supernatural way that gives encouragement and a boldness to all who heard about it. We have the execution, the judgment of a man who was standing in opposition to God and his exodus out of, his, out of this life and into an eternal judgment. At the very end of all of this, we're told that the word of God, it was growing and it was multiplied. In this context, again, when we talk about the word of God, they don't have the gospels. They don't have the book of Acts that is conveying this information. They don't have the subsequent letters that were written on, uh, written later on. More than likely, for the most part, the church, they're not sitting in the Old Testament beyond their sitting in, of course, their worship of God and, and their normal teachings that would go on in a Jewish context, but they're sitting in the teachings of the apostles in regards to who Jesus is. So in other words, when it's talking about that the word of God is growing, the gospel is growing in their life. 
they're, they're coming into greater understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. They're coming to, into a greater understanding of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be in the body of Christ together as a community. The word of God, despite the persecution that's going on, the word of God, the testimony about Jesus' death, the testimony about his resurrection, the testimony about the forgiveness that we have through Jesus, the testimony that we have of a life that is transformed by the Holy Spirit, the testimony that we have this ascended man, the man who, this God who became a man who created the heavens and the earth, he is coming back again, the hope that we have in him. All of this is growing in the community. We pray at the end of almost every service that we would grow in our knowledge and our understanding of the love of God. And that happens through the teaching of his word, the reminding of what the word of God says, who Jesus is, what he did. The church was growing. Regardless of what was going on the outside, the church was growing, not just growing internally, not just growing in maturity, but the body of Christ was growing in multiplication. People were being added to the church at this time. Now, we're sitting in a section in the book of Acts where Peter pretty much disappears from the scene, where he's been the focal point of the subject matter of these earlier chapters. We're going to see him again in the message that he conveys in chapter 15 as they're dealing with the Gentiles coming into the body of Christ. But I want for the next, it's going to be two or three weeks where we're going to sit in Peter's words in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And this is the reason. God preserved his life for a reason. In the preservation of Peter's life, later on, he wrote to the church. And the things that he wrote to the church were an encouragement. 1 Peter dominantly deals with the trials and the suffering that we deal with in this life. And not only just the trials and the sufferings that we deal with, but those things that come into our lives because of our relationship with Jesus Christ and what um, the community and the body of Christ looks like as we travel down the road of life following Jesus together. And then Second Peter, Peter is staring at death again. These are his last words. And he chooses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to warn us about false teachers, which is very similar to the warnings that Jesus himself gives to the body of Christ. So for the, I'm not sure how we're going to break it up yet. For the next two or three weeks, we're going to go rapidly through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and then we'll come back and pick up the book of Acts in chapter 13 as we begin the missionary journeys of Barnabas and Paul. So worship team, come on up. Heavenly Father, again, we love you tremendously. We are thankful for you. We are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the testimony of what is true. We're thankful that you have preserved these events for us, Lord, so that we can know you, so that we can have hope in the midst of the cultures in which we live. I can't imagine what our brothers and sisters have to deal with on a daily basis that live in oppressive governments like North Korea or Iran or so many others, Lord, where it is politically popular and politically expedient to do harm to your church. We pray for those, Lord. We pray for those believers to be strengthened, that they would be empowered in their testimony, that the word of God would grow in those communities, that the body of Christ would be multiplied in those communities. 
Lord, we are asking that you would continue to fill us with your spirit, Lord, that our prayers to you, that they would be earnest and stretched out, just not for our own selves, but on behalf of our brothers and sisters in regards to the events that are going on in their life. Lord, that you would deliver them out of those circumstances, that through, through those circumstances, Lord, that the, the individual, they would be built up, that they would grow in you, Lord, and be exposed to you and trust in you and all of these things. Lord, we pray those that stand in open opposition to you, that you would judge them in a way, Lord, that would bring about their salvation. Lord, we know that you did not take pleasure in the violent death of Herod, but that it was a holy and just judgment that came about in his life. And just as that event struck fear in the people then, it strikes fear in us today. Lord, may you manifest yourself in this world. May people see you. May they know the true and living God. May they know the hope of life and forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. And may each of us grow in that, Lord, and boldly proclaim it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.